0: Hey friends, Jonathan Rogers here. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a new online writing class that I've put together. It's called Writing with Hobbits. Over six weeks, starting August 18th, we'll read The Hobbit together, and we'll talk about the principles by which Tolkien works his particular kind of magic as a writer. Then we'll apply those principles to our own writing. I'd love to see you there. Find out more at thehabit.co slash hobbits. Welcome to The Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Christine Flanagan is an English professor at the University of the Sciences in Pennsylvania. She's the editor of The Letters of Flannery O'Connor and Caroline Gordon, published by the University of Georgia Press. O'Connor's letters have long been among my favorite things she ever wrote, but in this collection, Caroline Gordon's letters to O'Connor are the real showstopper. The Letters of Flannery O'Connor and Caroline Gordon bring to light a vital literary influence that a lot of O'Connor's most ardent fans don't know much about. Christine Flanagan, thank you so much for being on the Habit podcast with me. Thank you, Jonathan. I uh, so enjoyed your book, The Letters of Flannery O'Connor and Caroline Gordon. Um, And my listeners are probably pretty familiar with Flannery O'Connor um she comes up very often on this podcast but probably not as familiar with caroline gordon or carolyn gordon um so tell us about who was caroline gordon what was her relationship to flannery o'connor this this it's a great story
1: i can tell you caroline gordon was an unfamiliar name to me as well i uh as many of your listeners as well uh flannery o'connor was the familiar name and uh Years ago, there was an anthology published called Letters to a Fiction Writer, uh, edited by the late Frederick Bush. And in that book, there are a series of letters from fiction writers to fiction writers, and they're mentoring and giving advice on writing and life. And there was a letter from Caroline Gordon to Flannery O'Connor, this long letter, which is one of the first letters in my book. I think it was written in November, 1951. I think the original document is something like nine pages, single space typed. It's about 4,000 words, uh, which, you know, is about, I mean, 60, right? Four, I'm sorry. Yeah, 4,000 words, um, 16 pages, right, or so, um, typed. Uh, and it was this unbelievable door that opened for me. Who was this woman? gave okay such advice to Flannery O'Connor, this Caroline Gordon. So she stayed with me for years. And then as I went to work on Flannery O'Connor, doing different scholarship on landscapes and um, ecological ideas in O'Connor, I kept running into moments of Caroline Gordon in the archives. Um, So I found out, you know, among among many other writers who have gone the way of the past, she's not widely read or taught today. Uh, even during her life, she was more, as uh, she was called the wife of Alan Tate. Um, but during her life, she published two collections of short stories, 10 novels, two books of nonfiction. She was a person who was asked to write um, the front page Book review on the New York Times, uh, on the New York Times book review of Faulkner's work. She's the person sure. who brought attention to Faulkner uh, outside of the South. She's the person who was asked to write the introduction to an American edition of Madame Bovary. Um, she was highly accomplished. She won a Guggenheim in 1932. She um, had st- a story nominated for the O. Henry Prize. Uh, in my introduction to my book, I write a lot about. Um, in 1952, she was nominated for the National Book Award. So one year after she met Flannery O'Connor, she was nominated for the National Book Award. And the other nominees were Faulkner, Capote, Salinger. Um, her editor for 20 years was Maxwell Perkins. And that is the famous literary editor of Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald. So I could go on. Yeah. Who is this woman who has become invisible yeah, in so many ways. Um, so she, she had this incredible achievement and then she and her husband, Alan Tate, the poet, uh, they also lived They lived in New York, they lived in Paris, they lived in Rome, they were friends with Hart Crane, E.E. E. Cummings. But you, you left off Nashville, they lived in Nashville. Nashville, of course, was uh, where, outside of Nashville was Ben Folly, their home where they had um, other writers come to live with them, like Ford Maddox Ford, Robert Lowell. I mean- the, the, Robert the, Lowell lived in a tent in their front yard, right? He lived in a tent on their front yard. He just showed up and <laughs> because Alan Tate said, if you want to, or someone said, if you want to learn to write, you should really go talk to Alan Tate. And, so <laughs> came and they said, there's no room because Ford Maddox Ford and <laughs> her girlfriend was in the house and they had a million people coming in and out. And so Ford Maddox Ford, I'm sorry, um, Robert Lowell just opened a tent and lived on the front lawn. And this infuriated Ford-Maddox Ford Maddox uh, Ford, Carolyn Gordon, Alan Tate said, well, he seems like a nice guy. So they celebrated Thanksgiving with the Hemingways in Paris. I mean, the, the life she led with her husband, who she married twice and divorced twice, it's just this incredible experience. Add to that, she taught at over 20 different universities, writing conferences. And this is in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Uh, she's incredibly accomplished. She um, earned her bachelor's degree in classics. She was fluent in Greek and Latin. Um, yeah. So. So uh, here she, well, <clears throat> this is Caroline Gordon. So in, in the world of literary circles, people knew who Caroline Gordon was. Mm-hmm. They knew her. Um, but she's one of these people who has disappeared.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: It's, it's amazing to me to think about you. We, we
0: think of Flannery O'Connor as being this sort of lone genius off by herself. And, and, and in some ways she cultivated that reputation. Um, And, you know, I I think about what what she said to the editor, John Selby, you know, when he tried to help her and his idea of helping her was sort of, you know, changing the way she wrote. And and she used she She spoke of the peculiarity and the aloneness from which I write, she said.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, She didn't. She didn't like Selby very much
0: before she met uh, Caroline Gordon, just a few
1: months before she met her. Right. John Selby was the editor, the publisher, uh, who said, she said he treated her like a slightly dim witted campfire girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: She said he, he accused her of being prematurely arrogant. <laughs> Absolutely. Although and she, she also was, said she supplied you know the praise.
1: She was prematurely arrogant. <laughs> yeah.
0: For her. Yeah, right.
1: Good um, for her. Yeah. She certainly was in 1950 to, to speak that way to a publisher. Yeah, right. But that's that's
0: so amazing to think about through Caroline Gordon, she suddenly is connected just one degree of separation from everybody.
1: And it starts with her relationship with the Fitzgerald. So I'm going to go into the weeds if anybody likes Flannery O'Connor trivia, right? So Flannery O'Connor, everyone knows, went to Iowa and Yotto. And then she met Sally and Robert Fitzgerald, who became her lifelong friends. And Fitzgerald was her um, literary executor, and Sally Fitzgerald is the one who edited Habit of Being. Um, It was through the Fitzgeralds that O'Connor and Gordon connected. O'Connor was having trouble. O'Connor didn't know it. Uh, Harcourt Brace had wanted to publish her book. This is the first book, Wiseblood. Robert Giroux was the publisher, uh, was the editor at the time. And he was having trouble. He wanted to publish her book, and people at the publisher found the book shocking. They found Wise Blood disturbing from a young lady. Um, they didn't understand it. And Giroux, who liked O'Connor's work, she had been published in reputable journals. She had a good pedigree, she had a master's degree from Iowa. She had the Fitzgerald's and Robert Lowell speaking up on her behalf, but he really didn't know what to do. So behind the scenes, Sally Fitzgerald writes in her unpublished biography of uh, O'Connor, Sally Fitzgerald writes about there was sort of something going on in the background of Harcourt Brace with Wiseblood and Robert Fitzgerald is the one who had the idea to send the novel to Caroline Gordon. He had just taught with her at a writer's conference. Um, I wanna say Alan Tate is the godfather of one of Robert and Sally Fitzgerald's children. So they, they had a close relationship, Catholic intellectuals, writers. Um, Robert Fitzgerald asks O'Connor, is this okay? Can I send this novel, The Draft of Wise Blood to this writing teacher and writer, Caroline Gordon? And O'Connor says, yes. And that begins. That's where it ends. Um, Caroline Gordon writes back immediately to Fitzgerald and says, this girl has talent. This is, you know, good stuff. Uh, Writes a fairly long uh, assessment, you know, opening assessment. Like I think two scenes are really messed. Like she says, uh, I think she's muffed two scenes and a little revision that could go on, but she endorses wise blood. completely.
0: Yeah.
1: That letter goes to Robert Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald sends it to Giroux at Harcourt Brace. Harcourt Brace accepts the novel, and it is Giroux who sends the suggestions then on to O'Connor. Uh, and o- Gordon says, I'd be happy to read it again. Yeah. And does.
0: Okay, so we've been sort of been talking about her, Gordon's connectedness, Mm-hmm. I, want talk, I want to sort of shift to to talk about what she did for Flannery O'Connor as a mentor, sort of in the in the craft of writing, because because as a, I love that story. I, I didn't until I read your your uh, introduction. I didn't know about Carolyn Gordon's role in sort of breaking that
1: logjam for Wise Blood, and that's super. It's another moment of invisibility. Yeah. It's another moment of. Um, uh, you, you'll, you'll see that I'm a bit of a Caroline Gordon fan. It's a moment where she is not credited in the way that other people would have been. The number of times I've read short biographies, you know, short, here's Flannery O'Connor on Wikipedia or wherever, where people credit Alan Tate or her Iowa teachers, um, the ones who said they didn't really like Wise Blood, they really thought she shouldn't work on it. Um, and Caroline Gordon's name is never mentioned, and she never sought that for herself. She never did any of this for her own self promotion. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, it's it's so apparent from from you know your work just how generous she was. I mean, these letters she wrote, the the detail, it's just. Shocking! How
1: <laughs> to you, no, know, Jonathan. I feel like writers and the listeners of your podcast who are writers would understand this, and I think this is a way that scholars and writers are different. Maybe, maybe not. When I was in graduate school, and my best teacher in graduate school wrote me nine pages of critique and comments on a short story that changed the way I wrote forever. The value of that and the number of times we have that in this life as writers are so few. Yeah, And the amount of time, as you know, you're a teacher too, the amount of time it takes to invest that kind of thought in someone else's writing. So yeah, the generosity is just mind-blowing. If all Gordon did was wrote it was to write Flannery O'Connor that single letter in November 1951, where she gives her feedback and she says, you know, you're pretty much done Wise Blood. So this is kind of for your future work. She's being very diplomatic. She's saying, think about this for your future work, but I'll talk about Wiseblood and I'll use some examples. That single letter is a masterclass in creative writing. And uh, yeah. it's, it's just phenomenal. And then that went on for 13 years on and off. You know, there weren't every single story that had that amount. But if you, if you jump forward to 1964, when uh, O'Connor is looking for feedback on Parker's back, and she's writing it in the hospital, and Caroline Gordon surprises her by just showing up at the hospital to visit O'Connor in uh, July 1964. And um, O'Connor gets some feedback from her usual people on Parker's back something's not right. She still sends her final story to Caroline Gordon. And Gordon writes feedback, which is a letter, the, one of the last letters in my book. And it's 4,000 words. Mm. Feedback once again, 13 years later. Yeah. And uh, Caroline Gordon, knowing she's sick, also says, here's a short version. Here's the long version of comments. Here's the short version. And then she also realizes O'Connor's on her deathbed. And so she finally just sends a quick um, telegram. You have succeeded, you know, so. Uh, wow. Another act. She learned that, <clears throat> you know, you talk about generosity. Caroline Gordon did the same thing for Walker Percy. Mm-hmm. AIM uh, month, she wrote Flannery O'Connor, that first big chunk of feedback on Wise Blood. She wrote a longer letter to Walker Percy about his work. Um, yeah, her first introduction to, to
0: Percy and O'Connor came the same week, right? Or does that move? Make- her
1: first, it's really interesting. Her first made these big letters that were critiques both come the same month. She writes essentially about 50 pages of critiques for these two writers in two letters the same month. Um, Two writers who had, had either one published a novel yet? No, neither yeah. one had published yet. She had known Walker Percy and his family. Oh, uh, okay, Walker was actually paying her, which many people don't know. So, really? she had said, you know, "Because at this point, again, Caroline Gordon is very accomplished. At this point in yeah. time, fifty-one. You know, she's pretty accomplished, and so she thinks I'll charge people. You know, for yeah. my she didn't charge O'Connor, but she did." <laughs> I think she charged Walker Percy a hundred bucks. And I think she donated, said, oh, I'm donating it to the church or something like that. Uh-huh. But um, you know, we can go back to Ford Maddox Ford, who was Caroline Gordon's mentor. Mm-hmm. She started working for him as his secretary in 1927. She was 31. She had published no fiction yet. She had been publishing as a journalist for 10 years. And she met Ford Maddox Ford, began working as his secretary. And during this time period, you know, it's everything from retyping his handwritten manuscripts. Imagine how much you would learn, retype yeah. manuscripts of Ford Maddox Ford. Or he would dictate to her and she would sit there and type while he dictated his fiction to her. Yeah. Imagine what she must have learned there. But he didn't only teach her writing. And then when he heard she was writing, he made her show him his work. And he, you know, there's a great story in my introduction about how he sort of took her by the scruff of the neck and said, you know, you sit down, you're writing fiction, you sit down, now you're dictating to me. And he, but he also showed her what a writer's community was. And again, this is something I think you really understand, Jonathan, that a community for Ford Maddox Ford was You come to Paris, I'm not there, you're staying in my apartment. Mm -hmm. Friends, we share food together. You come to Clarksville, Tennessee, um, and Ford, Maddox Ford, and his wife, you're staying for months on end, Mm -hmm. our extended family. When Gordon first published, um, when she published her first novel, Ford, Maddox Ford, wrote an endorsement of it saying this is the best constructed American novel I've ever seen. You know, he just gave her these kinds of support. And so I think Gordon really learned what it was to be a writer in the most expansive way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about one specific bit of advice that Caroline Gordon gave to Planner O'Connor. because i can't imagine that flannery o'connor needed this advice and well anyway and, and and i couldn't i couldn't locate it in the in the book but i remember it, and i remember you talking about it at something i heard you speak at yeah. um, where she talks about which she, uh, uh, gordon says to o'connor in your story it, it feels like i'm looking through it's like, it's like you're a, a burglar with a flashlight, and I'm just seeing immediately what you need. I'm not seeing the landscape. I'm only seeing exactly what you're showing me at the moment.
1: Yes. Uh, that is so
0: it's amazing to me that, that O'Connor, I, I think of her as, as being a person who's so strong on place and atmosphere. That it's hard to imagine her ever needing that advice. And did she? Oh, I mean, the, the, you're the, right. The fact that Caroline Gordon is the one who told her that,
1: Anyway, That specific advice came in 1951 as O'Connor was revising Wiseblood, so it was early in her career. And I would attribute many of O'Connor's achievements to the teaching of Gordon, and the use of landscape and setting is one very specific way. We can see in letter after letter, Gordon giving her this advice, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, Gordon is telling O'Connor Uh, And I love this writing advice. You know, you can't write in a vacuum. Um, You have to imitate God. You have to create a whole world or the illusion of a whole world. And she says about wise blood, it's like, um, she says, I love the dramatic action of the book, but I think the whole book would gain, if it weren't so stripped bare, um, surround the core of action with contrasting material. And then she goes and she says this, this passage. Suppose we think of a scene in your novel as a scene in a play. Any scene takes place on a kind of set. I feel that the sets in your play are wonderful, but you never let us see them. A spotlight follows every move the characters make and throws a blinding radiance on them. But it's a little like a spotlight a burglar uses when he's picking a safe. It illuminates a small circle and the rest of the stage is in darkness most of the time. Focusing the reader's attention completely on the action is one way to make things seem very dramatic, but you can't keep that up all the time. Uh, She says it demands too much of the reader. It would be better, she says, if you occasionally used a spotlight large enough to illuminate the corners of the room for those corners have gone on existing all through the most dramatic moments. And this is advice. I love this advice. I, I, um, I've written plays and I've taught playwriting as well. I always ask my creative writing students, like, what are the props? What's on the stage? What else is, you know, mm-hmm. what's above, what's below? Yeah. Um, she she will come back to this piece of advice in different ways. But what a phenomenal piece of advice she's talking about setting. Yeah. Saying, look at Chekhov's story. Look at Madame Bovary. She'll say, um, you know, landscape reflecting the mood can get monotonous. If you have a fighting couple and the weather is stormy, that can get monotonous. She'll say, also use some contrasting material mm-hmm. in the setting. Um, you know, so
0: it feels to me like okay. if you're the if you're the person who. who convince Flannery O'Connor to do that, you're kind of the person who made Flannery O'Connor. <laughs> you
1: know? I mean, there's no, I've, I've said it time and time again, and I don't mean it as a dismissal of O'Connor's talent. I don't mean to disregard her achievement, but Flannery O'Connor would not be Flannery O'Connor without Carolyn Gordon. I, um, I think that is just unquestionable, but I've seen the manuscripts. So I've seen the manuscripts, the letters, and the final version. Um, the amount that I've learned from Caroline Gordon in writing is, is just uh, so expansive. I love, she'll, she'll go back to that, that, that burglar, that spotlight though, and say things like, you know, in Madame Bovary, she'll describe a scene where Flaubert has Emma and the, the, again, the spotlight is on a few characters and all of a sudden they hear the sound of uh, a rooster outside in the distance. And Caroline Gordon says it makes a scene more dramatic to go outside of it with description. You don't just have to stay within that scene. She'll use examples from James Joyce to illustrate this. Um, You know, when I edited Caroline Gordon's letters to O'Connor, I have a reading list. I don't know if I'll finish it in my lifetime. (laughs) Writers I should read for um, advice on writing. Wow. Um,
0: Did you... Did you find her sometimes in reading through your book? It, it felt like her advice was so technical, it was kind of hard. Sometimes it was hard to, to find out ways to apply because it was so technical. It was technical, and
1: this goes back to uh, Caroline Gordon went to school at 10. To She attended a classical preparatory school for oh. boys at 10. Her father taught there. <laughs> He knew, again, she knew Greek, Latin. She knew sentence structure. She will diagram sentences for O'Connor, telling O'Connor where the language goes wrong. She will talk about loose and periodic sentences. And she will say, you know, I might be didactic, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people, um, and I think rightly so. Um, conclude that O'Connor was put off and a little um, alienated by these kind of specific comments. You know, you can't use the word squinch. You can't use the word word slurped. (laughs) You are P-E-D. The omniscient narrator would never, you know, Gordon is always harping on, the omniscient narrator would never speak this way. But you know what? Gordon's right. And there's a reason why James Joyce is James Joyce. When you look at Araby and you read the final sentence, that is not the character's voice, that is the omniscient narrator's voice. And so Gordon understood these layers of technicality that that I'm still trying to learn. Um, So I I think uh, she's called pedantic. Uh, People say she alienated others with this sort of critique. And I I do not, um, I'm not ashamed to say, I love this kind of feedback on my writing. Mm-hmm. Tell what word to put at an end of a sentence because it's going to make, you know, a, a powerful impact. But um, I think this is the difference between writers like Nabokov and Joyce and Toni Morrison and other writers, that they care about um, the work on a sentence level. And Caroline Gordon was not always successful in her own writing. You know, I think where Caroline Gordon was successful was in the technical elements and maybe not as successful in those dramatic moments that O'Connor so achieved.
0: Um, And and so do you see evidence in O'Connor's letters back to that she's in any way alienated or offended by some of these comments?
1: Never to Gordon Mm -hmm. in the habit of being, and other places she'll say, ugh, you know, I think there's a, O'Connor writes something around 1961. She is uh, working on the memoir of Marianne, writing the introduction. And she says something about Carolyn Gordon, like she will sacrifice anything to grammar. She's so hung up on grammar. Yeah. So there is evidence that, you know, O'Connor stepped away a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and there's evidence that Gordon said to her very clearly, damn it, what's wrong? Can't you get what I told you? You know, Gordon did not, she did not um, sugarcoat her criticism. And O'Connor was good with that. That, that was okay. But at a certain point, it, it did, I think it did space them apart. The, the flip side is Caroline Gordon was the age of Flannery O'Connor's mother. Uh huh. Gordon had a daughter O'Connor's age. So they were not peers. They yeah. were uh Catherine Ann Porter and Caroline Gordon. Dorothy Day and Caroline Gordon were friends, peers. Uh, they were not um, close in that way. Caroline Gordon was never officially O'Connor's teacher. And they did not have a mother-daughter relationship. They never had that kind of a relationship either. So O'Connor always treated Gordon with respect. Even, you know, she'd complain about her to yeah. her friends like everybody will, right, about other people. Yeah. She always maintained respect for Gordon. She would even defend Gordon when things were particularly difficult for, for Gordon in her personal life. Yeah. Um, I, I would call that a, a real relationship.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Where people, you know, honestly communicate and Sometimes you need space from each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did Gordon alienate O'Connor? The simple answer is, yes. You can you can interpret that absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But would return to at the end of her life. You know who is she sending her final story to? Yeah. Yeah. And she knew Gordon always had her best intentions when it came to fiction and fiction writing.
0: Yeah. So. Okay, this is my next next to last question because I always end up with the same last question. Um, you, in, in your introduction, you you remarked that while there were so many people who didn't get what Flannery O'Connor was doing, Caroline Gordon was never puzzled by her. She got it from from the start, um, which is not an easy... I mean, there, there aren't many people who got it from the start. I mean, Rainer Chang used no. to get it, you know, right off. Um,
1: but... No, I Tell did not. Wise. First time I read Wise Blood, I did not get it from the start. Sure. Caroline Gordon, I write, uh, yeah, that, that her O'Connor's work would never puzzle Gordon. And I think there's a number of reasons why. Um, the, the most simplistic reason, strangely enough, is that they were both Catholics and they saw themselves not just as Orthodox Catholics. Um, Caroline Gordon was a convert. Um, What they saw themselves, O'Connor later on, but Gordon saw herself as a Catholic intellectual and she occupied a space with other Catholic intellectuals like Robert Fitzgerald, who was translating the Iliad and the Odyssey, like uh, Jacques Martin, uh, who famously wrote and scholasticism. He was, you know, arguably the greatest Catholic intellectual on both sides of the Atlantic at the time and was close friends with Gordon and Tate. Mm-hmm. He was their godparent when they. He, he Jacques Martin and uh, his wife were Alan Tate's godparents. Okay. so um, So there is the idea of being a Catholic and that that had some intellectual capacity to it. Mm -hmm. This is something that I think is lost today. That's another conversation, though. The second part of why Gordon got O'Connor, though, goes back to Gordon's classical education. Gordon studied, um, and the classics, and think about it, no one has ever said of Homer, those characters are grotesque, (laughs) really violent. Yes is violent never once did gordon say of o'connor's work that it was violent or grotesque interesting had that classical background and gordon immediately that, that, that her her understanding of classical works fused with her catholic sensibilities mm-hmm. people don't go around saying the bible has a bunch of really grotesque characters in it Boy, is that fine right so these are the things Gordon understood. She understood that storytelling was to communicate a purpose. Um, And so when she read O'Connor's work, she immediately understood, oh, she's trying to achieve these effects. She's trying to say these things. And she wasn't hung up by, wow, this is a really strange character. Yeah, And she said, I should say, she said very um, clearly, uh, I think Gordon said, and it was later on in their um, relationship, Gordon said, um, you know, there's only one plot in all of fiction. She mm-hmm. says, scheme of redemption. Yeah. Any other Gordon plot? said that. Gordon said that. Yeah. Uh, any other plot, if it's any good, are splinters off the basic plot. And she really felt this way.
0: So. That sounds like... I mean, I had to ask, because it's not something O'Connor would say, or probably did exactly. say, in a clear manner somewhere. Exactly, um, yes. And one thing I was thinking about, and again, I'm, I'm quoting from your introduction, and you're quoting uh, Caroline Gordon, she says, I think I've been converted partly by my own work, too. I have lived most of my life on the evidence of things not seen, and what else is writing a novel but that? Which, again, sounds like something O'Connor would say. Um, like if, if you showed me that and said, is this from
1: Mystery of Manners or from somewhere else, I would say Mystery of Manners. Exactly. So that's that's exactly why these two women were so they they just got each other. O'Connor knew immediately that Gordon was a reader who understood a vision that O'Connor couldn't even articulate in nineteen 19-
0: Yeah.
1: And um, yes. I, I want to say in O'Connor's first letter to Caroline Gordon, she says, when she's thanking Gordon, saying thanks very much for writing to me about Wiseblood, and she says, um, the one thing, this is Flannery O'Connor, says, the one thing that has confirmed me is that it, my novel, Wiseblood, might be recognized by Catholics as a proper effort for a Catholic. Um, Um, I might not be
0: recognized
1: to write a Catholic novel. Yeah. And so Flannery O'Connor saying to Gordon, thanks. I'm so glad you got it. You understood it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. I said that was my next, this is my next last question. Uh, when you read mystery and manners, do you just see
1: Caroline Gordon everywhere in that? I see Gordon everywhere in O'Connor. I see Gordon everywhere in O'Connor. And, uh, this, I think I could spend my life just finding um, ways in which they make sense to one another. Caroline Gordon published a book called How to Read a Novel. Um, I don't remember what year that was, nineteen 1950s, 1957, How to Read a Novel. It was just republished recently. And O'Connor read that and she wrote a book review of it. I forget if the book review was published or not but O'Connor said uh, she passed that book along to her friends Read Mm -hmm. by Gordon, how to read a novel. Mm. It's really more about writing, not about reading. Yeah. I'll check that out. I I
0: don't know that. Lannery
1: O'Connor sort of understood her equally. Yeah. When, when I, and and so here's, here's
0: some praise for your book. Uh, When I read Mystery Manners, I've always thought, man there's nobody like flannery there's nobody who thinks like flannery o'Connor this is this is just a she is a a species of one, and then I read what you've put together and I think not true she was not a species of one she was a species of at least two um, because I, your, your your book has changed the way I think about you know about O'Connor's place in the sort of intellectual and literary world so so thank you
1: and again. And again, I think that to understand the role a mentor can have does not discredit that writer's achievement. Um, To, I think we see this, you know, all the time, but we also see it and hear about it in sort of a vague way. Like so-and-so was the mentor of, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to give you a compliment. I loved, you know, it's funny. I love archives and I knew I had read your book years ago, A Spiritual Biography of um, Flannery O'Connor. And so I Googled, I was like, where, what did I say? What did I do? What did I write? And I found an email I had written to myself in 2014, jotting down notes on your book. Yeah. Specifically that you had written, your observation of Flannery O'Connor is that she um, invites us to step into mysteries, but she never resolves them. And she never reduces them to something manageable. Mm -hmm. I I just love that. And I love that I found it in my own archives. Um, And that's one of the ways Carolyn Gordon understood O'Connor as well. Yeah.
0: Great. Okay. We've arrived at the last question and I've (laughs) I've, I've, I've warned you. Yes. Who are the writers who make you want to write?
1: Changes all the time.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Always different. Anything by my teachers, uh, my best teachers are Thomas Gavin, Melanie Ray Tone, Jessica Treadway. Uh, Jessica Treadway actually has a new book out right now called The Gretchen Question. Uh, those are three fiction writers. Every time I read their work, um, you can put a note in your notes for the podcast. Anytime I read anything by those three writers, um, I am reminded by the craftsmanship of writing and um, The teaching and the generosity Mm -hmm. that they showed me as well. Uh, Right now, this year, very specifically, I am. uh, what I do is I get obsessed with a certain piece, and then I want to crack apart that piece. I cut it apart by scenes. I tape it to a wall. I look at each scene individually. I sort of move around. So I'm looking at a lot of nonfiction, but specifically Leslie Jameson's essay, 52 Blue, is the thing that makes me want to write. It's that I want to understand what she did and how she did it. And it is just a phenomenal essay, Um, 52 Blue, you can google it. Um, Okay. Today, that's that's the writer who is making me really want to think about writing.
0: I will check that out. All right, Christine Flanagan, thank you so much for being thank on.
1: Thank you so much, and I love your podcast. Keep on. Well,
0: thanks. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. Special shout out as well to Jess Ray for letting us use her song, Too Good, as part of this podcast. Visit JessRayMusic.com to hear more of her beautiful songs. The Habit Membership is a library of resources for writers by me, Jonathan Rogers. More importantly, The Habit is a hub of community where like-minded writers gather to discuss their work and give each other a little more courage. Find out more at TheHabit.co. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash...